Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. We've been talking a lot lately about some of the development libraries for KDE, and it all comes together here in the package kdevelop. We're not actually at kdevelop yet, but we're basically there, so let's call it kdevelop. Before kdevelop, there's actually two. I mean, we left off with kdesu last time, so there's kdev php and kdev python, and then kdevelop. But all of these are obviously, as you can imagine, pretty much talking about the same the same thing, which is developing for KDE. The KDEV PHP is a plugin that provides support for PHP in KDevelop, and the Python package provides support for the Python language in KDevelop. So those are just add-ons to KDevelop. That's what we're talking about right now, KDevelop. KDevelop is KDE's very own IDE. There are a lot of IDEs out there, integrated development environments. There are lots of them out there. And a lot of them are really very quite good. Like there's Eclipse, that's good. NetBeans, that's good for for Java. Um, PyCharm for for Python. Jupyter Notebooks for Python. I guess you could call. Yeah, I don't know if you strictly call that a, an IDE, but it comes to mind. Um, Spider, I guess you would probably call an IDE. There there are lots of them out there. And a Cute Creator, forgot to mention that one. And and everyone's got sort of their favorite or their least favorite. Um, and that's fair. The, 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 the common, at least among hobbyists, one of the common debates is whether you need an IDE at all. I, I don't actually hear that debate as much with professional programmers that I happen to know. Whether or not that's indicative of anything, I don't know. I, I, I find that a lot of professional programmers just kind of, they don't seem to mind what tool they're using like if they're at a job they'll use the ide that the job provides so if they've standardized on eclipse or or eclipse che or code ready workspaces or whatever then that's what they use and they seem to be okay with that um whether maybe they're harboring deep-seated resentment i don't know but from what i can tell it's not really that big of a question on in the, sort of the real world where stuff gets done but among us hobbyists who just poke at things with sticks and complain about them um there seems to be a debate over whether you need an ide or whether a text editor is just fine thank you very much and i i think that i think anyone would have to 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 say that the text editor is just fine, thank you very much, technically speaking. Like, you want to write code? Yes. Okay, you need a text editor. Now you can write code. End of story! Like, that's 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 where the story, that is it, that's all. To compile it, you'll need a compiler, but I mean, that's really all you need. A text editor and a compiler. You're done. Um, the reality of it is, though, IDEs have a lot of helpful features. Some of them are, are rather benign. For instance, there's a really nice panel on the left of kdevelop, and it shows not your file system, although there is a tab for that labeled file system, uh, not the file system as such, but the the file system as it relates to your project. So it shows you a project view, and that project view is useful because maybe sometimes 
you don't actually care so much about what the files look like on your hard drive so much as you care about how your compiler is going to see those files. And that's a, a weird kind of differentiation because, I mean, the files are there either way. How, how could a different view give you a different, different interpretation of those things? And, well, actually, you can get a different interpretation of a bunch of files because if your IDE happens to know that, oh, the, these two, th this file creates a whole new class. It's a whole new object. Well, maybe your IDE could represent that as a, with a special icon within that project structure of, hey, this is a class. This is an object in your program, and, and you should you should keep that in mind. Now, this class consists of this particular file, and it also brings in these header files, and so now you have a new view of what that of what that entity really is, rather than having to extrapolate all that yourself by looking at files in a file system and understanding how they fit together. Your IDE now kind of explains that for you. There are other features that are a lot more sort of active and and interactive, I guess. Uh, one common one that I see a lot is that you roll over a keyword for that language and you get a bunch of information about that keyword. So maybe there's a maybe there's a variable or something that's named uh, I don't know um, k k foo and you think is this k foo thing a um, is this a what is this is this a built-in keyword of of the kde within the you know is this a, a function within kde framework or is it something that was it was created within this file as a part of the template is that just a suggested name or, or what is it oh it's a if i roll over it it says it's a it's within the kde main class and the kind is a variable. Oh, it's just a, it's a variable. So I could rename it. I could refactor this and, and call it something else if I wanted to safely. Um, whereas if you rolled over something else and saw that it was a function or a function macro or, or something like that, then you would know that you probably should not just arbitrarily rename that. And sometimes there are errors. I mean, often there are things that'll catch errors for you. So if you, if you enter something wrong, uh, it, it may detect that based on either its foreknowledge of the language that you're writing in or just the context of the thing that you have started composing. So, it, you know, it, it knows, for instance, that I've got a variable declared here uh, for the int, uh, for int argc. So now if I go and use something that's not argc somewhere, then it it will be able to catch that for me. And, and tell me that it doesn't understand what arg is. And did I mean argc? Actually, it doesn't know whether I meant argc, but it does know that arg is not defined. And so that might that might jog my memory and, or, and, and, realize, and make me realize that that was an incorrect, you know, that I used the wrong value. Uh, so there are lots of things like that in an IDE. So IDEs can be really, really useful. They can be, um, they, a lot of them have sort of built-in debuggers as well, so you can step through your code. Um, and, and there are just a lot of features that can sometimes be very, very nice and very specific to what you're doing, where while if you're doing, if you're just writing code in a text editor, you don't get all that necessarily for free. Now, maybe you don't need that stuff. Maybe you, maybe you have, uh, your editor configured to catch certain things like, uh, you know, if you use a variable, or the wrong name for a variable. Maybe, maybe your text editor can scan through your document and see if that exists yet. If that has not been mentioned yet, then maybe it will warn you, or maybe it will um, warn you 
once it realizes that that thing that you've just created hasn't yet been defined, if, if it can't find that specific word pre prefixed with either int or string or car or whatever language it is that you're writing in with whatever kind of data types you've got available to you, then maybe it could warn you and so on. So, so you may be able to have a lot of the features that you absolutely need without all the extra stuff that you don't want, like, I don't know, uh, linting for, for just style or, or showing you that different file view or trying to manage your compiling, your, your, your build uh, process and your uh, syncing back up to your Git repository and all the other different things that a, a text or a, an IDE can do. But I think especially when you are dropping in to an established project, I find it very useful to have an IDE because the IDE really does automate a lot of the stuff that you're going to have to do to familiarize yourself with that project. Whether that project is just learning Java or C++ or whether it is going into an established project, uh, an application rather, uh, that, that has a bunch of custom classes and functions that you can't possibly know yet because you've just opened up the code. An IDE won't explain all of those to you, but as you start to type something, it might be able to scan, it, it can scan through that project and find find reasonable auto-completions. And I'm talking about auto-completions from header files and things like that. So stuff that you haven't even maybe looked at yet. It'll know about functions that, that you haven't thought to check for or that you, you haven't seen yet. You've checked for it, but you just didn't notice. There's already a git underscore foo underscore value um, function. And, and now you know because you started typing it. It auto-suggested it. That seems pretty reasonable. And then when you can complete it, you can roll over the, the function probably and see the documentation about it. See the doc strings. Uh, what kind of arguments does it require? What kind of output does it provide? What does it return? What what kind of return value does it uh, and what kind of data type does it return? That's really important. So little things like that can really, really help you kind of settle into a an unfamiliar um, project or environment. And And like I say, that could be an application. It could be a framework. It could be a language. Whatever it is, the IDE automates you finding out about stuff. And that's really all, you know, when you are getting familiar with an existing project. I mean, that's really, I think, most most of what you're doing is just reading code, not necessarily to sort of like understand the flow of information all the time, because sometimes there's just too much information and you don't care about half of it. You just want to zero in on that one thing. So you don't really need to know like how everything works. You just need to know how what tools are provided f to you to make the thing that you want to happen, happen. And that's a lot easier when you keep getting suggestions from your IDE about, oh, there's a function for that already. Or, or maybe there's not a function for that yet already, but there's something really, really similar to that over here in this class. And you could look at that code and maybe learn from it or whatever. So I, I, bottom line, I think IDEs are really important. I think they're, they're really, really almost vital for for when you're contributing to a code base that that has existed long before you started coding or you know like long before you even knew that the project existed there's been code of that project and and it has had a couple of lifetimes before you came along an ide is a really great way to kind of start getting familiar with it that's just me personally other people may may differ 
Um, but I, I do find that a lot of places that I've worked, at least, a lot of people seem to use IDEs, so I don't know. Seems to be something there. KDevelop is the IDE for the KDE project. I mean, that's a big deal. So this not only has knowledge of, uh, you know, cute, cute technologies, but also of the KDE frameworks. Because you can get a really good IDE in Cute Creator, I guess. I guess that's still around, right? They haven't discontinued that. That would be that would be crazy. Cute Creator. Yeah, Cute Creator is still a thing. Okay, just making sure. I, I knew that, but for some reason I just... Maybe some other big IDE has discontinued recently. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, you can get a really good uh, um, IDE for, for C++ and I guess whatever else Cute Creator supports these days, which I think has got to be at least JavaScript, QML. Is it PHP out of the box? I don't remember. And Python eventually, like after after the correct libraries have been installed. Or maybe it's built in now. I don't know. I haven't looked. So KDevelop has knowledge of the Qt libraries upon which KDE is based, but it also has knowledge of KDE, the, the KDE framework. And that's pretty important. Um, and the way that that sort of manifests is when you launch KDevelop, I mean, I don't know what happens when you first launch KDevelop because it's been too long since I've done that. But at some point you get into a sort of a, a, a new a new project wizard. And this has, uh, at least in on my system, has uh, presets, preset templates for Akinati, KDevelop, KIO, PHP, Plasma, Python, Qt, and then standard which um which is basically just a cmake project that's really what that is uh, and even within standard you can do uh, an empty gui application or a terminal based application that's kind of cool um so yeah you heard me correctly there's php and python sort of already kind of ready to to go and within python it looks like they have django and a simple python application and then simple cute gui application using designer so yeah you could do do either of those uh, and then there's like i say plasma you can create a data engine a plasmoid or even just a wallpaper which is kind of neat if you really want to just take take your time getting into it create a wallpaper that 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 seems like it would be a good way to learn sort of just the, the general system. Okay, so you can create a, a, a template that way, or, or rather you can, yeah, you can create a project with a template that way. And the template gives you a bunch of stuff for free. It gives you the licenses, it gives you whatever kind of base source code it might require. Uh, it's got uh, some install and uninstall scripts and CMake lists and a readme, a default readme, and all that sort of thing. So there's a bunch of boilerplate code here that you just don't have to worry about. And you might think, well, that's not the best way to learn something. There's going to be a bunch of code that's already there and kind of start me off in a place where I, I don't even understand what's being handed to me. And, that, and that's, there's an argument for that. Um, but I think, I think for these projects, I mean, part of the advantage, if you're, if you're using this, part of the advantage is going to be that the boilerplate is already here. The, the structure of the, of the, of the project directory the, the the basic code or at least some example code for how to integrate or, or how to to call these the the, the systems or the um, libraries and, and functions that are being provided to you by the KDE frameworks that's kind of the value of KDevelop. I, I don't think that it would reasonably necessarily be uh, the IDE of choice for for general use coding, but definitely if you want to use the KDE framework, then this is this is a 
a very significant prepared way for you to to get into that and that's i think that's the advantage um the python and php integration is nice because now whether you know c plus plus or not you you have an, an, a way to integrate into kde with with your applications um and certainly whether or not you know c plus plus i mean again that doesn't necessarily mean you're familiar with the kde libraries the functions that they provide the classes that are available through kde framework rather than for instance the cute uh, libraries so that's really useful as well so kdevelop is a is a it's a big kind of it's a it's a big sort of um introduction into the the kde framework and it is it probably ought to be your first stop if you're going to write a KDE application or a K application, then KDevelop is probably the place you want to look at first, at least to familiarize yourself with what's available, if not to bring your whole project into completion. Frankly, it's probably the, the way that you'd want to go for the, the whole time because that will give you the correct project, the directory structure that people within KDE would expect to see from a project. So that's kind of significant. Okay, so that's that's KDevelop. KDE WebKit. This is uh, the cute WebKit library for KDE integration. Th this is so endlessly fascinating because, of course, WebKit only exists because KHTML exists. WebKit is a fork of KHTML. And so... WebKit coming back around into KDE is kind of funny because it was already here. It was KHTML. So KHTML rebranded as WebKit by the company that, that forked it and then reintegrated into KDE as, well, reintegrated into, integrated into Qt as Q, uh, as Qt WebKit and then brought into KDE as KDE WebKit. It's a lot of, a lot of integration happening there and, um, there's there's a whole set of opinions about whether this was executed the best way possible. I mean, not not KDE WebKit, but the the fork from KHTML to WebKit. Um, I think the, the the widely agreed upon opinion is that it probably wasn't. There were better ways to to fork a project and to work together with the KDE community, but the company that did that did not decide to uh, exercise that option. And so now we have KHTML being developed in one place and WebKit being developed in another and WebKit being integrated into a bunch of other stuff by a bunch of other projects, uh, which is a good thing. I mean, it, it is open source. And so it is, you know, the process is working. It's just that the company that created WebKit probably could have done it a little bit better for everyone. Uh, KDF is a little program that will show you available disk space. KDisk free that's what KDF is. And KDF, uh, the package, contains uh, an application called KDisk Free. Um, you can type in either one into the K menu and it, it, it shows you what, what, what's available. So KDF or KDisk Free, if you, if you prefer the more, the, the typing more. Um, and it, it just, it shows you everything that's mounted, shows you the type of, you know, the, the file system that, that that mount point contains, the size of that mount point's uh, file system, what mount point it is that you're looking at, how much space there is free, with a percentage of it, uh, of how full it is, and then the usage percentage with a little progress bar of, of how how full something is. Really, really handy. I mean, it's, it's, it is a, 
uh, an immediately, you know, kind of human-friendly view of DU or DF with a bunch of parsing and and graphical display. It's not as graphical as it could be. This is not file light, for instance, which eventually I assume we'll talk about. But but it is a nice, really quick, mostly text view of disk space on a system. After that is K-Diagram, which I don't have a whole lot to say about because there's not a whole lot to look at. It's a bunch of uh, libraries and header files and stuff uh, that provide uh, li- libraries to generate charts and Gantt charts and things like that for business applications or businessy types of diagrams. And that is uh, useful probably for Caligra, I'm imagining. I don't actually know for sure. But that's kind of what I'm I'm assuming. Um, so that's yeah, K diagram. And then last uh, but not least for this episode is K dialog. K dialog is a really really cool little application. It is um, a little bit like I'm blanking on the name of the other the non KDE version Zenity Z E N I T Y Zenity. Uh, Zenity is a really cool application as well, but that's not. That's not what we're talking about. K-Dialog is what we're talking about. And K-Dialog is a, a quick and easy way to generate a dialog box. You can use it from shell scripts. You can use it from um, probably other things. Let me look at what we've got here in the K-Dialog package. K-Dialog. Uh, yeah, we've got the executable itself, K-Dialog. And that's it. So yeah, it's really sort of a shell scripty type of thing actually. So k-dialog, uh, you can generate a, a really quick, well let's do dash dash help first and see what we can generate. So we can do, um, yeah here we go. So there's k-dialog, we could do yes no text. So we could do k-dialog dash dash yes no and then some text such as are you enjoying kde? question mark close quote. And I misspelled the K dialog. I put a U E at the end. Uh, so there it is. K dialog with no U E, just K D I A L O G. And then dash dash yes no. Quote, are you enjoying KDE? Question mark. And there's a yes and a no button. I click it and it exits. And that's it. That's, that's the, that's how you use K dialog. Well, that's fun and all, but what good is it? Well, it can actually be really useful in shell scripts to, to make your, your shell script a little bit more interactive. Uh, and you can do all kinds of things. So for instance, let's do k dialog dash dash yes no quote are you enjoying KDE? And we're going to do ampersand ampersand. So that means if if the previous command, if the first part of this command was successful, if it returned no error zero, then we'll echo um, good exclamation mark close quote. Uh, and so then I'll hit return and I get the dialog and it says are you enjoying KDE? I'll click yes. And on, in the terminal, I get the output, good, exclamation mark. Now, if I do that again and click no, then as you can probably guess, I don't get the output. I just get nothing on the on the terminal. So I could, for instance, say, um, I could say uh, the same thing, or, or, yeah, k dialog dash dash yes, no, uh, are you enjoying KDE, ampersand, ampersand, echo, good, exclamation mark, and then in quotes, and then uh, pipe, pipe, which is the sort of logical um, symbol for for if 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 failure then you know or do this so then echo that's too bad so I've got ampersand ampersand we're gonna say good 
And if if the previous command fails, then we're going to say that's too bad. So I'll hit return, I get my K dialog yes, and I get good. I say no, and I get that's too bad. Well, there's a lot more than just yes or no. You can do yes, no, uh, cancel, I think. That, that's, I mean, cancel, as far as I know, returns the same thing as no. I could be wrong about that. haven't really looked into it. Um, there is, yeah, yes, no, cancel. There's warning, yes, no. So that's a little bit less conversational. It'll show you a warning symbol, so it looks a little bit more urgent. Uh, there's an OK with a label, an OK button label. So you could, you could use your own text for the button. There's no label. Uh, there's a cancel label, so you can customize the labels of these buttons. There's uh, continue. Uh, there's a sorry uh, message box, an error box. Let's see what else is there. There's something. Ah, here, uh, input box. That's uh, there's a password input, so we could do um, k dialog dash dash password quote enter your secret password close quote comes up with a little box, and I'll say okay to that. Now, what happens to the text that I just typed, well, it gets echoed back out into the terminal. So, password into your password. I'll type in um, hello world, and then hello world is is returned on the terminal. Now, the 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 box itself, when I'm typing, it's just got little dots. It's got bullet points, so you don't see what you're typing. Although it does have one of those cool new like eye eyeball icons where you can choose to see the password text, which I love, um, but say someone was looking over your shoulder, you'd leave that off and all people would see were dots. Now, once you cut back to the terminal, they would see the password because it does spit it right back out into the terminal. But you can, of course, redirect that. You don't have to put it into the terminal. You can do a redirect tilde slash demo um, my kdialog.txt. And now I can put hello world. And now if I cat demo k my, my, my kdialog.txt, there's my hello world with three L's instead of two. Um, so, so that's nice. And, and of course, in, in a shell script, obviously, you, you wouldn't probably put it into a file either. You would simply compare that string that you re just received to the string that you expected or whatever. Uh, probably not the, the best way to do passwords, honestly. You, you'd probably want to, you know, GPG encrypt stuff and, and, and see what's going on. But, but anyway, you get the idea. Uh, there's a new password dialog box. That's kind of cool text box, combo box, so that's where you can input numbers and things like that, radio lists, checklists, menus, icons, I mean, all of the widgets that are available, really, within, not all of the widgets, the the common sort of interactive buttons and combo boxes and radio boxes and, and checklists, progress bars, uh, color picker, all that stuff, even a file opener, like you can have someone choose a file through K-Dialog. It's all here. Sliders, uh, it's all here. Calendar widget, um, you have it entirely available to you through just this simple front end. I mean, you kind of wish all all programming was this empty. It was this easy, don't you? I mean, really, it would just be so simple if that's all it took to make really, really useful applications. I mean, I guess in a way it does. That is all it takes. This is a, a pretty robust front end. Uh, it would be kind of interesting to see what one could do with just K-Dialog. I, I really don't know. I haven't thought about it, but it is kind of neat to even just imagine like yeah, how could that be abused to be really, really useful? Right now, it's really nice. It, it's a nice little interactive front end to, 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 to a way to, to give feedback to a shell script. I mean, you know, I don't love 
interactive shell scripts. I mean, I, I feel like the point of shell scripts usually is to, to do something sort of fairly automatic. So I can launch the thing, I can pass some options at the front, and then it doesn't bother me again while it processes all of the things. But, I mean, strictly speaking, it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, it's a powerful little language. You could do a lot more with it. So why not try using KDialog with it? And and as long as people are running KDE, then they have access to KDialog, and they get the, they get that the same kind of experience as everyone else. Pretty, pretty cool. It's really fun to, to, to mess around with. I mean, its biggest drawback, I guess, really, is that it is a KDE application, uh, which isn't a drawback per se, but... If you are programming and you think, well, what if someone is going to be using this that isn't going to be using KDE, then yeah, that's a little bit of a drawback because you're going to you're gonna try to think of something different, uh, which, you know, you'll probably look at Zenity, Zenity for, for that because that could be installed, you know, rather easily on, on lots of different systems. So it's a little bit weird that it, it's so specific to KDE, but at the same time, it is really useful and it's really, you know, it looks as, you know, it, it follows your KDE theme. It looks as good as the rest of KDE. So it, it's kind of nice to have that around. Feels like it's time for a coffee break now. So let's do that. We'll come back and I want to talk about PDFs again. I know I've talked about this several times in the past and it's going to be the same story. It's going to be about how much I hate PDFs, but I have new information. New information has come to light and I'm going to talk about it. So let's go get some coffee. Do you have coffee? I have made myself a cup of flight coffee bomber in my stovetop espresso maker, or I guess the mocha pot, as people have told me that it's technically called. Although, again, I always grew up thinking it was an espresso maker, stovetop espresso maker. In, fa- in fact, if there are any Italian listeners here, because I, I, th- I think I was told that in Italy they call this this this. What, what I'm told is called a mocha pot. I, I've been told that they just call that an espresso uh, maker. So if, if anyone from Italy knows about this, do write in and let me know. Anyway, that's neither here nor there right now. Well, actually, coffee's kind of always here and there, isn't it? What I really want to talk about in, uh, besides coffee are PDFs, because someone on Mastodon uh, was mentioning PDFs. Now, they didn't say it to me. They just said it to Mastodon, and, and so I, I was one of the people who responded. So I'm not going to read what they said because it wasn't it wasn't directed to me. So what I said back though uh, was PDF is designed for print. It's a bloated wrapper around PostScript, which is the language printers use to calculate what to print. And EPUBs are built for digital presentation. EPUBs prioritize content over style, so they can work on a variety of devices. PDF is meant as a digital representation of a printed page. Adobe is trying to shoehorn ebook functionality into the PDF format, but that's only because they try to shoehorn everything into the PDF format. And that is actually almost correct. I mean, that's almost true. Um, what I said was correct. I mean, that is the PDF, the PDF goal 
is to be like a sheet of paper, but on your screen. And I think it, it it's called maybe the paperless digital format or the paper digital format or something like that. I think I think the name the the acronym has actually changed over the years for you know since it first started. I could be mistaken about that. I haven't looked this stuff up lately, but. The thing about PDFs is that they are they are a wrapper around PostScript, and and it's a puzzling wrapper because PostScript, like your computer, can render PostScript. I don't know. Maybe that wasn't true all the time. Like I don't I don't know. Maybe that wasn't something that computers sort of had the capabilities of doing or something. Maybe PDF had actual sort of purpose behind them, and maybe maybe the the format has changed over the years. I don't know. Again, I I haven't done extensive research into early PDF. Early PDF to me was much like a lot of other people, just a magical format that you could download stuff that kind of looked like a web page, except it was static, and it seemed to work okay. Um, later, I learned that it was, actually not much later, I think I, I actually knew this pretty early on, actually. Um, it, it was a what they called a pre-flight format, which meant before you sent your file off to the big printer, who was going to make 10,000 copies of it, PDF was the destination. You would print your thing to PDF first so that you could verify that what you thought you were sending to the printer indeed was what you were sending to the printer. Now, now these days, uh, a PDF is just what you send to the printer. Uh, but, but then it was, it was considered a pre-flight format for, for the publishing industry, and it did well there because it, it, it was really sort of fit for purpose. Now, around the same time, Adobe was doing a, was making a concerted effort to ensure that everyone in the world had access to a thing that could open up PDF documents. That was really important to them because without that component, the, the PDF format was largely useless. And most people didn't have a PDF reader on their computer because it was a new format at the time. So they had to sell not only the format, but the the component that needed to read the format. And they did that by providing that component as a free download. And it was a big deal. You'd think people had never seen anything for free before. And you know, interestingly, in a way, people hadn't. I mean, there were always, there were always, you know, there was always freeware and shareware and apparently open source, as it turns out, although I didn't know about that either at the time. Uh, and I think a lot of people didn't know about it. But when the internet was just sort of like gaining popularity, it was relatively common. Well, it was, first of all, it was relatively uncommon for you to understand that you could download stuff off of the internet. And so when you found that out, that was pretty exciting. You could download stuff off of this thing that you didn't have before. And one of those things was this reader that could open up magical PDF files. Wasn't that exciting? Um, and, and Adobe made it sound exciting. I mean, you would get a free Adobe reader on every AOL CD that you got in the mail or whatever. I don't, I don't actually know that for sure. But I mean, I remember it being on a lot of things. And you would just, everything, magazines, every ma PC magazine would would come up with would bundle you know when they bundled started bundling uh, CDs on the front cover and later probably DVDs there 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 would be that free Adobe Reader included in the bundle and it was very exciting because this this is the way that you would be able to look at content on your computer and and at the at that time in, on the you know with the internet becoming sort of a thing there was that component of wow we can download things from this from this internet and and use them on our computer isn't that exciting yes it was but there was also kind of it started to become the norm 
it, it became not unusual for you to have to do that. Because at the time, web browsers didn't handle much more than text and maybe some graphics. I mean, there was a time probably when they only did text. I don't know. But I, I do remember a time, personally, where it was really just text and graphics. And if you wanted to, like, have a sound file or a movie file or a PDF document, then you had to download that thing and open it up in another application. And there were there were other applications out there. There was a, like Adobe PDF Reader or Acrobat Reader, whatever it's called. Uh, and there was Real Player, Real Player for Real Media, I think is what it was called. Um, that's all. That's all I can remember. There were, oh, Flash. What am I talking about? Flash and then Macromedia, uh, something else. So there were all kinds of like little helper apps to sort of help you get a, a a bigger experience off of the internet. And then eventually, I think, internet browsers started integrating a lot of those little helper apps into the browser and so on. And a lot of that became transparent. I mean, heck, these days, you can open up a PDF in your browser. There's no There's no extra application required, even though everyone already has a PDF reader on their computer anyway. So it's PDF, the, the Acrobat Reader, I think, got really popular among common folk. And I wonder if that's part of the success story there, is is that Adobe Acrobat in the PDF format, well, yeah, I should say the PDF format was used by a niche of professional workers in, in, in the publishing industry. So a, subs, a very small subset of, of big business used the PDF format. But then Adobe ensured that normal everyday common folk could also use that format and had access to to being able to consume that that um that format and i wonder if there's something there you know because i mean if you think about it uh microsoft office in a way or excel at least is kind of like that where not everyone actually uses excel in the office it's a relatively uh, maybe not as small as pdf oh well of course, I'm, I'm talking, if you're talking about current time, then everyone's using everything. But, but you know, early on, I feel like it was probably mostly accountants and people who had to do things with spreadsheets, uh, which I can only think of accountants right now. But they would use that tool for, for serious actual wor- work, but everyone else found a use for it, and so it became ubiquitous. I think Linux is kind of the same way. I mean, the, Linux professionally used to be really just on the server, but then a lot of people found a use for it. And and I just wonder if there's something that that recipe is is kind of significant. And and maybe not. I mean, because I mean you you certainly probably you can't compare PDF with Linux, right? I mean PDF is is huge. Everyone knows what PDF is. A subset of everybody knows what Linux is. A subset of everybody who knows what it is uses it every day on their computer. So there, there is in some way no comparison. And yet in another way, there's actually a comparison because as, as, as niche as Linux may be, think about how it got started. I mean, it literally got started with a guy in his college dorm. I mean, it was just, it, it, it's a very, very grassroots, it came from grassroots and and then it grew into something that's kind of impossibly big. And it does kind of follow that same pattern. But anyway, I digress. What I'm really here to do is complain about PDF. And I've already started doing that. I've, I've told you already that it's a bloated format with um, that, that that gets used for things aside from its actual intended use. And and sometimes that's a fun, cool thing to do. It's, it's I mean, we, we even have a, 
a term of, of, of affection for that process. It's called a hack. People hack things to use something against its intended use. So PDF is, is, is a, I guess you could say people are hacking PDF, although they're really not, it's really just abusing PDF uh, files as, as a format. And, and here's why I say it's more of, of sort of abuse than hack, because hack is usually, not always, but usually there's an implication that it's improving the thing. It is using something in an improved way. Again, not always. I, I purchase uh, books off of Humble Bundle from time to time. Sometimes you get an EPUB. Sometimes you luck out. So other times you get a PDF. And Humble Bundle doesn't make a distinction between those two formats. They'll say that it's an ebook bundle, and and sometimes they mean it's a bundle of EPUBs, and sometimes they mean it's a bundle of PDFs, and other times they mean it's a bundle of uh, comic book archives, CBZs. So they don't really differentiate between that. And by the way, sometimes they make their CBZs wrong. I have filed a bug with them, and they didn't understand what I was talking about, but... They did do it wrong. They had a folder embedded in their CBZ, and they're not supposed to do that. It's just supposed to be a, a zero-level uh, zip archive with no no descending, uh, no, no subdirectories within the, the archive. So anyway, PDFs. Um, this previous, the, the, the most recent bundle that I purchased from hum, Humble Bundle was a, a collection of, of what turned out to be PDFs. And, and yes, you can, like if you go to Humble Bundle, just to be clear, you can go to their book bundles and look, and, and if you do your due diligence, you will find, you can find out whether it's an EPUB or PDF before purchasing. So I'm not saying that they tricked me or anything like that. I'm just saying sometimes you see a really good looking bundle of books and you think, I'm going to get that because I would like to read those books. And sometimes, and, and then once you've made that decision, sometimes it's a PDF, sometimes it's an EPUB, but you're going to get it either way. And that's what I did here. So saw a bundle of books that I thought was interesting. I purchased it and downloaded a bunch of PDFs. And the advantage of, of distributing a, a, an, a book as a PDF for a publisher is that there are no extra steps involved. The, their workflow goes from probably Adobe InDesign or something like that to PDF, and then they send the PDF to their printers, and they get, let's say, 2,500 or 5,000 copies printed. And then they send the digital, the, the, PD, the same PDF file to their digital distributor where infinite copies are now available. And that's just, that's how modern publishing goes now. I mean, it, it makes some sense if you, if you pretend like PDF is a suitable digital delivery of, of content. Um, I'm going to argue that it's really not. It's not, it's not meant for that because if you've ever tried to read a, a PDF that was formatted, for an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper on a phone, you know how horrible that is. And I know there are some applications, I think if you sign up with Adobe and get an account with Adobe, you can download their special super duper Acrobat reader that will, uh, I think, impose reflow on PDFs up to a certain size. And and that's just, I mean, listen to that process, right? I mean, that's that's a horrible process. So Obviously not not a good format, but anyway, aside from that, there are uh, PDFs that are. I mean, we're talking. Well, actually, here's here's a funny one, right? So this one was 134 megabytes. It was one page. It was just a graphic. It was a it was a map. You open the thing up. It's literally one page. That is a graphic. And I thought, well, that's a really big PDF, 134 megabytes for a for a graphic. And admittedly, you could zoom in to that map 
quite quite a fact. You know, you, you could really zoom in a lot. It's a very high resolution graphic. 134 megabytes though. That's I mean, we're talking XCF. Uh, you know, like, like that's a that's a really that's a that's got to have layers and stuff in it. So I, I took that graphic into Inkscape first because that's what I usually use to deconstruct PDFs because Inkscape can convert using the lib poplar or the the poplar library lib poplar. It can convert a, a, from PostScript and PDFs and stuff to to uh, SVG. So I, I took it into Inkscape and, and extracted the image and discovered that there were no layers, no PostScript, or well, I guess there were technically there's PostScript bit data, but it's it's not it wasn't a vector graphic in other words. So which I kind of figured it wasn't because it's 134, but I thought maybe there at least were components to this graphic. But as far as I could tell, it was a flat PNG. So I took the PNG and saved it out to disk, which ended up being something like 60 megabytes. So that's already, I've cut the size of the PDF in half by extracting the one graphic that it contained and exporting it as a PNG. I don't know what they had it saved as in the PDF. I think it was a P PNG to be honest, but maybe it was a TIFF, who knows. So already cut the thing in half. And then I used image magic to convert the image down to a WebP format and got the thing down to 4.4 megabytes. Understand that there was no loss of resolution, no noticeable loss of quality. It was just a matter of, of taking it out of the PDF. Well, really, it was just a matter of taking it out of the PDF, but also converting it to, to something smaller like WebP, which is kind of the, the best you're going to do for, for graphic size right now. 4.4 megabytes down from 134. So if you ever doubt that PDF is a, introduces some some amount of bloat, then there's some evidence that that is true. Now you can argue that, well, what really probably should have happened was that the publisher should have gone to extra, you know, obviously if they're sending that file to the printer, then file size doesn't matter. And in fact, the, the bigger probably the better because you have more color depth and so on. So it would be better for them not to compress the thing. And I would agree with that. That is absolutely true. And and so I think part of the problem with PDF, it's not just that it's naturally bloated. I mean, it is, but it's not 134 megabytes up from a 63 or 62 megabyte picture bloat. That that's Something else is going on there. And, and maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe it is color space or, or, or something, but whatever it is, Something's going on there that probably makes sense for the printer, not for the digital distribution. So obviously, it would have it, it would benefit the user, the digital distributor, to get the 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 lower quality or the 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 more highly the the highly compressed uh, PDF rather than the lossless uncompressed PDF. So that's that's kind of on the the publisher and the digital distribution. I think between those two, they probably should have figured that out if they really cared about digital distribution, and I don't blame the publisher, to be honest, because they're a small-time press, and like I say, the advantage of distributing PDFs is that you don't have to go through any other step. Um, and I guess I can't really blame Humble Bundle, uh, because they're just, the they're, they're going to post whatever you send them. So I don't know who gets to take the blame there, but between the two, I think the users could have, would have appreciated, or at least this user would have, uh, a smaller file. So anyway, Got that file down to 4.4 uh, megabytes, which was nice. And and it was really just a, a matter of, of well, I, I used Inkscape, but you can also use PDF image, or is it PDF2 image? Better check. PDF2 image? No, just PDF image. Oh, images. PDF images. 
and that is a package that comes with libpoplar, which uh, maybe we'll get to libpoplar at some point. Um, but you can use that to extract an image, and, and there, there are different flags that you can use to extract different formats out of the PDF, and sometimes you have to mess around a little bit to find out sort of like the best quality, and then you can compress it more with ImageMagick if, if you want. So that's that's one workflow to get around the whole PDF problem. Another, or not a workflow to get around it, but a, a thing to do with your PDFs, possibly, potentially, is to to minimize them. Like really, it, it is well worth it. And, and there are some PDFs that you wouldn't want to do that with. I mean, like I say, quite possibly there are PDFs that you actually want in in their fullest, fullest quality because you are actually sending them to a printer. I would not minimize those in any way. And and there are some that, that have graphics in them that you really, really care about. Like if I had a PDF of fantasy art or something, uh, I, or, or important uh, graphs that I was going to have to uh, put up on on display somewhere, maybe I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to those I wouldn't want to reduce the quality of those. But if it's a PDF where you know you're only viewing it on your computer screen and 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 if you certainly if you have a backup of the full quality PDF, then then for me at least there's no reason not to minim, uh, to like optimize the PDF. And by optimize I really mean go into the PDF and reformat the images. And I've talked about doing this before when we were talking about ghost script but either since then, or or who knows, maybe maybe I had it and I didn't mention it, or maybe I even mentioned it. I don't know. I have a shell script called PDF Min, P D F M I N, as in minimize, and I have it in my uh, binary, my bin directory, in my home directory, in, in in home, and I use that to reduce the size of PDFs, and it is. It's a relatively severe script, but it's really actually quite useful. And I think I'll probably post it maybe in the show notes or something. Or, or maybe I'll throw it into a Git repository and, and link to that. I don't know. I mean, it's just really, it's just been lying around on my computer for, for I don't know how long. But it's super, super useful. And it simply does a, it checks for a help flag. So if you do PDF min help, it, it spits out the usage. And the usage is PDF min, and then the path to the PDF that you want to minimize. And that runs it through ghost script with dash s device equals PDF write dash delta compatibility level equals 1.4 dash delta PDF settings equals forward slash screen dash delta no pause dash delta batch dash s uh, Sierra output file equals uh and then you know whatever the input file was so quote dollar signs curly brace one close curly brace close quote dash min dot pdf and then uh of course the input file is quote dollar sign curly brace one curly brace quote and that's all it does so it is a one-liner that i turned into a little script because i was typing or actually i was copying and pasting that one line from a, a file for so long and I just decided, well, that was stupid. So I just wrapped it up in a really quick and dirty uh, shell script. Really easy to use. Takes a lot longer than it should, I feel. Like, r- really, it's just, I, I'm almost, I have half a mind to use PDF TK to explode the stupid thing first. And then send out the GS uh, script through Parallel to deal with all the different pages or something. But I probably won't do that because I want to maintain the integrity of the PDF. 
Either way, what this does is that it rewrites the data from a PDF into a new PDF container. It retains all of your fonts, all of your all the typesetting, and it takes all of those images and down-reses them to something that it deems appropriate for the screen. Now, you'll have mixed results with that. So, again, I would do this if you, you know, keep your keep your original if you're not sure about this process. But if you know that there's something out there, you know, a PDF that's like 25 megabytes, and you think, that just doesn't have that much in it that I care about, I would much rather have that be 2 megabytes. Then run it through GhostScript or PDF Min, if I remember to post a link to this thing, and, and it, will, it will shrink it down, I mean, literally, from like 25 to 2 megabytes, from 134 to maybe not 4.4, because I, I, that was one graphic, but, well, no, but actually probably would still get down to, you know, something near 5 or 10 megabytes from that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's huge, huge savings on the size of PDF, and it's just so simple. It's, it's GhostScript, it's easy to do. It is so simple. Now, there is another project out there that I just found out recently about. It's called Minuimus, Minuimus, M-I-N-U-I-M-U-S dot P-L. It's a Perl script, which, I mean, that kind of makes me interested in it because I'm, I'm really fond of Perl now. But the, and that wasn't sarcasm. That was actual, I, I am actually a very big fan of Perl. Um, and, and this is, um, this is a Perl script, and it uses a bunch of different applications like OptiPNG and, and um, I don't know, Lenify, and there's a JPEG one as well. I forget what it's called. But they're all, all of the little dependencies are, are available on slackbuilds.org. Uh, this script itself is not. But it is a very cool script, and it, it, it does what it claims to do, which is uh, minimize PDFs. I, I don't know for sure that it has to sort of go through the, the the lengths that it has to go through. Like, I mean, honestly, the, the ghost script thing works really well for me. So I don't know that it's any better than that, but it is different and you could try it. And, and it, I, I'm, I'm not going to by any means claim that my one line script is, is more thoughtful than a, a Perl script that not only shrinks PDFs, but it does uh, CBR to Z, CBZ, RAR to ZIP, RAR to 7-ZIP, 7-ZIP to, I don't even know, ZPAC, GIF to PNG, PNG to WebP, MP3 to Opus, uh, limited to 256 kilobytes uh, MP3 for some reason, legacy video format conversion to WebM. I mean, it does a bunch of things. So, this is something to check out. It's a, I will definitely put the link to this in the show notes. It is a, a very cool little script. Um, the only the only thing about it is that it does require a fair number of dependencies for it to you to be usable on Slackware. Well, on anything really, but I mean, you know, you'll have to hunt down the d- dependencies on Slackbuilds.org. I will say, however, it's pretty forgiving. Like, as long as you have the basics, which I think is Opti, PNG, and whatever that JPEG one is that's slipping my mind right now, as long as you have, like, the basics, it will happily process your your file, I mean, as, as long as it can, um, and just leave off the stuff that doesn't, that, that, that it can't do. You know, like, so if you're, some, there are some soft dependencies is what I'm trying to say. So that's a cool one. Definitely worth it. 
um, or, you know, if you're trying to reduce the file sizes of things, it is definitely worth looking at. So do check out either pdfmin or minuimus.pl because they're both really great ways to save a little bit of hard drive space. And I mean, honestly, just to make your PDF more performant, I mean, that's half the battle, really. It's just loading up a 134 megabyte PDF file just to read some text and glance at some graphics as they fly by. It's just, it, it just seems so silly. So reduce it. Get it down to like two megabytes. It's a lot easier. It's a lot faster. It's just better. So try that out. Okay, that's it. That's all I have to say about PDFs for now. I will definitely return. Oh, you know what? I, it's not. See? I'm going to return to the topic right now. So someone did ask me in response to um, my Mastodon post that about like alternate formats. Like well, what's the open source alternative to PDF? And I've talked about this on this show before, or maybe it was Hacker Public Radio, actually. I'm not going to go too deep into it here, but I'm just going to throw out some things. And I, I, I said to this person that it depends entirely on your use case. Because obviously, if you're, if you are, maybe not obviously, but if you are sending something out to a printer, then your best bet is a PDF. That That is its intended use. That's what printers use. And so that's what you would want to send. Um, I would send a PDF before I sent just a, a PostScript file, even. Like, I imagine out there in the non-open source world, people could open up PostScripts in something reasonable. I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, Ocular and Inkscape and all, you know, LibreOffice, they just treat P- PostScripts as PDFs. So, I don't know, to me it's not a big deal. But for, for the real world out there, PDF is is the right target if you're going to print. That's that's the purpose. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that because, like, PDF is well-designed. I'm just saying that's the printer, the printing industry has adopted PostScript as the language of printers. And so if you want to give a printer exactly what you want to see, you want to talk in the same language. You don't want someone else to have to come up behind you and convert a bunch of things. So use PDF. Uh, Or if you really, really don't want to use PDF, talk to your printer, ask them if they accept PostScript. It's not outside the realm of possibility, but PDF is the one that makes sense for, for that task. Now, if you want to avoid PDF altogether, and there are obviously many, many reasons to do that. I mean, that's what the last 20, 30 minutes have been all about. But um, if you want to avoid them, uh, PDF format, then there are alternatives, and I'm going to talk about them really quickly right now. For, and, and it depends on your use case, like I say. So printer, yes, PDF, or an EPS or something like that. But really, PDF is what you want. Otherwise, if you're going out to something else, so for instance, maybe you just want a non-editable format. That's all you're after, really. You want to deliver people a, a presentation, and you don't want them to be able to go in and... and 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 get it all messed up. You you don't want them to be able to edit it because that's not the intent. Well, you could just use a graphic format. There are lots of great graphic formats out there, and most people can open them in at in the very least they can open them in a web browser. So any graphic format like PNG or JPEG or or WebP that'll do. Now you could also use most graphic formats within a zip container .cbz specifically, and a lot of some people may have a comic book reader on their system and be able to open it just as an e- as a graphical ebook on their computer that way. That would take a little bit of prep because you can't really count, you know, CBZ is not as ubiquitous by any means as PDF. I mean, I guess nothing is really. Well, JPEG is pretty ubiquitous. Um, but 
that, that you know, you, you'd have to know your audience there. But CBZ is a valid uh, alternative. DVJU, D, or is it DJVU? It must be DJVU. Um, is is another format I've talked about on, I think, Hacker Public Radio. It is not well supported. It's not even all that great. I mean, it's I mean, it's an interesting curiosity that it exists. I, I for me, I don't feel like there's that much of an advantage over DJVU over CBZ. Although to be fair, CBZs don't really account for embedded text at all, and DJVU does. So I guess there is that advantage. And then. Of course, if you're just sending text, you can just send HTML or EPUB or a text file, something like that. Like that, that works as well. That's perfectly serviceable. And again, people are going to be able to open those up in a web browser, if nothing else. So those are formats. Those are things that you could do. Oh, an EPUB. Did I even mention EPUB? Yeah, I did. HTML or EPUB or um, a plain text file or, or I guess like an office document of some sort. I don't know what non-open source people use for that. I guess just docx. I don't know much about that. But I mean, .odt file. Why not? Uh, certainly, if people are using like Google Docs and stuff, that that can open up an .odt file. So lots of different options that aren't PDF. And I think I think we've gotten into a really weird place in computing right now, where it it almost feels like if people are trying to deliver a thing that that isn't music or video, I think a lot of people just kind of think it has to be a PDF. And and I don't know how we've, I don't know exactly how we've gotten there. I mean, I know PDF is ubiquitous, but I mean, why do people think, oh, I want to give people, I want to deliver this, this graphic to people quick, make a single page PDF that, that contains a single PNG f- uh, f- uh, graphic and send it to people. Like, well, why, what's the thought process there? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, even for printing, to be honest, it just doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. I don't know, maybe PDF has some kind of color space preservation thing that I've never looked at. But to me, that just seems like a really weird workflow. And, and I think that it's representative of the fact that, yeah, I think people, people kind of think that, well, the only way I know to deliver a thing to people is wrapped up in a PDF. Part of that might simply be because web browsers handle PDFs rather elegantly. Um, I don't know. I mean, is it more elegant than an image though? I, I, I really don't know. Um, maybe if browsers started doing like rollover things for specially marked up images where you could down, you know, cause PDFs, when they loaded your browser, you have like that little toolbar at the top, at least you do on Firefox and you can download or print or something else. So maybe, maybe that's part of it. Like people understand, okay, I've got this document. It's in my browser right now, but I could download it into my hard drive. I mean, they don't understand that it's already been downloaded. So they can think, oh, I can put it in a place that I can find again. And they understand that. And maybe just some people just don't know that you can right click on an image on the internet and download it, that sort of thing. So I'm not sure how we've gotten to the point where PDF is the non-video and non-music downloadable format. But that seems to be where we're, where I, from, from my perspective, I think that's where we are, to be honest. Um, and it's really, really annoying. So I don't know. Avoid PDF um, unless you're sending it to a printer or if you're sending it to a bunch of people and you don't know what formats they can open. And so you have to send the PDF because you're stuck. I guess that's how we've gotten here. People can open PDFs no matter what. That's the guaranteed easiest path to success. And I guess that's why we're still using it. Well, let's at least all try to work towards getting PDF to be a little bit less ubiquitous. Start sending different formats to people. See, See how it goes. Okay, that's a request, not an order, but uh, thanks for joining me in my, my 
battle against PDFs. Thanks for listening to the show, more importantly. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open